The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, he's the OG of European novelists, the author in Spain who did for the novel what Shakespeare, an almost exact contemporary, was doing for the play in England. Miguel de Cervantes, author of The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha, or as we know it best, simply... Don Quixote, or The Quixote, or as my British professor used to say, Don Quixote. Very interesting. An American student challenged him on the pronunciation and said, wait, isn't Don Quixote the correct way to say it? It's closer to the Spanish, isn't it? And the professor said, you can try to get me to change the way I pronounce it, but I warn you, your attempt will be Quixotic. Touché, professor, or should I say touchy, professor, since in his case, that's what he was. He was following Lord Byron, who pronounced it quixit. We know this because he rhymed it with thick sought. And you know what? This sounds like a digression, but it isn't. But it's going to be a bit longer than I thought. So let's get our theme song out of the way. But first, I need to tell you that we have two Cervantes scholars here today, Professor David Castillo and Professor William Eggington. They are experts in the world of Cervantes, and they have a very powerful new take on what we should learn from Cervantes. Their book is called, What Would Cervantes Do? And it's the application of that question to our modern world that is so intriguing. Cervantes and his lessons for us 21st century windmill tilters Today, on the History of Literature. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I was about to make some points about Byron. It began with pronunciation, but let's move beyond that. Byron clearly pronounced... Quixote is Quixote, but who cares really because, A, he also pronounced Don Juan as Don Juan, which is really a shame because Don Juan is so intrinsically poetic. About as good as you get unless you're talking about a name in Italian where every name is beautiful, just like every cypress tree and every roof and every smile in that blessed adopted country of mine. And B, because who cares about pronunciations? We have bigger fish to free, fry, fruit. We know who he means. Pronunciation is like a bit of clothing, a scarf maybe, a button. Meanwhile, we want to know who the person is. Could be a monster, could be a friend, a great person, a superhero in lowly form. None of that depends on what our different dialects compel us to pronounce. Let's talk about the stuff inside the flesh and the soul. Okay. As you can see, I'm having a hard time getting to the point today. Luckily, my guests are very cogent 
and they'll be here soon. I used to cite Admiral Nelson to remind myself to be more pithy. Never mind the maneuvers. Go straight at them. But here's a good one, also attributed to Nelson. The order of sailing will be the order of battle. So let's do that now. Only essential maneuvers from here on out. Byron wrote about Cervantes in the Don Juan, and I want to cite it here because I think he sets a pattern that I was still following up until a few weeks ago when I spoke to the two guests we have with us today. Why is Cervantes important? What can we gain from him other than sheer entertainment of the novel? Well, my answer might be that he was critical to long prose works in Europe, that he put forward a novel that modernized the form and made it viable for all the mighty novelists who came after. And within that novel... The Quixote. He displays a quick intelligence, a wit, a knowingness, a cleverness. One of those authors who sort of stands above the characters and the text, maneuvering them like a master puppeteer and being a great storyteller in the process. The Cervantes, or the author, or the narrator, comes across as confiding. He trusts you, the reader. That's the feeling you get. Sometimes with a novelist, you get the feeling they're not really good at communicating with readers. They don't connect very well. They become like a preacher standing on their mountain, chanting into the stiff wind, unaware that their congregation is too far below and can't hear them clearly, and yet they keep going. Cervantes is different. Even now, 400 years later, you feel like he's on your side. He's right at your level. He's more like the friend at the dinner table or or in the parlor in front of the fireplace than some vaunted know-it-all who drones away and doesn't know when it's time to stop. And what else do you know of Cervantes? Well, he created two indelible characters, Quixote himself and Sancho Panza, and the indelible relationship between them, and this is key. If you're a Quixote fan or an English major type or you just read the introduction to one of the many editions of Don Quixote, you probably know that Cervantes was making fun of the chivalric romances that preceded him. All that chivalry, all that puff, all those puffed up balloons, and he was there with a long, sharp pin. That's kind of the, the take on Cervantes that has come down to me. Now, I learned a lot more about his biography. He had quite a uh, an incredible life, and you can hear all of that in our episode that was just devoted to Cervantes. But let's turn to Byron, because I think he actually sets forth this idea that I had, that what is good about Cervantes, what survives, what's important, what's essential, is that he took on these chivalries and undermined them, so to speak. And I didn't know there was another side to Cervantes, which our guests are going to bring up. But let's hear what the side is first that started with Byron, or at least maybe didn't start with him, but is at least as old as Byron and was handed down to us English major types. So here we go. This is from the Don Juan or the Don Juan. But neither love nor hate in much excess, though t'was not once so. If I sneer sometimes, it is because I cannot well do less. And now and then it also suits my rhymes. I should be very willing to redress men's wrongs and rather check than punish crimes had not Cervantes, in that too true tale of Quixote, shown how all such efforts fail. 
Of all tales, tis the saddest and more sad because it makes us smile. His hero's right and still pursues the right to curb the bad, his only object, and against odds to fight his guerdon. Tis his virtue makes him mad, but his adventures form a sorry sight. A sorrier still is the great moral taught by that real epic unto all who have thought. Redressing injury, revenging wrong, to aid the damsel and destroy the caitiff, opposing singly the united strong from foreign yoke to free the helpless native. Alas, must noblest views, like an old song, be for mere fancy's sport a theme creative, a jest, a riddle, fame through thick and thick sought, and Socrates himself but wisdom's quicksot? Cervantes smiled Spain's chivalry away. A single laugh demolished the right arm of his own country. Seldom since that day has Spain had heroes. While romance could charm, the world gave ground before her bright array. And therefore have his volumes done such harm that all their glory as a composition was dearly purchased by his land's perdition. Okay, what is happening here? What's going on with Byron's description of Cervantes? He's expressing the view that Cervantes stands for the idea that chivalry is not just dead, not just not just clogged or or clotted up, but the very idea of it is comical. There is no nobility. There is merely empty-headed, hypocritical gestures destined to be mocked by right-thinking people. And Byron laments it. Where will heroes come from if you tell everyone that trying to be heroic is a sucker's game? Cervantes smiled Spain's chivalry away. Here, Cervantes is not, let's, it's, this isn't just let's expose chivalry and chivalric thinking as ridiculous. Well, there is sort of that, Byron's saying. He smiles it away, but Byron doesn't stop there. He adds this point, kind of a, a too bad, I sort of wish we could believe in things sincerely and without a sneer. It's the backlash against the mockery to say, well, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be helpful if people could believe in heroes a little more than they do? He himself, Byron himself, is much closer to Cervantes in his poetry, as he himself notes in the verses I read. He sneers when it's handy to close out a rhyme. He mocks with the best of them. A good mocker, as Ringo might say. <laughs> Sorry. A Beatles reference. Go straight at him. Okay, here we go. The order of sailing will be the order of battle from now on. But sometimes, sometimes the wind plays a trick and I have to readjust my sails. So listen to where Byron begins and ends. Chivalry was there. Cervantes mocked it. And we lost chivalry and maybe that's too bad. Maybe we should be the earnest kid in the class trying to get things right rather than the cool kid at the back of the room throwing spitwads at young Socrates. And for most of us reading Cervantes, I think we accept that hey, those chivalric romances probably were getting pretty ridiculous with damsels in distress everywhere, the 16th century equivalent of women tied to train tracks and heroes riding up on steeds to save them from those mustache-twirling villains. So that's Cervantes. Our conception of Cervantes inherited from Byron. Chivalry was all puffed up, inflated with hot air, and Cervantes was there with his needle 
puncturing the balloon forever. It sounds like he's he's sticking to the world of literature, isn't it? He's saying, you foolish readers filling your heads with the nonsense in these books. I'll show you where that leads. My book will puncture the myth, both puncture and punctuate, for it will be the exclamation mark that ends this period, so to speak. Our guests, I think, would probably agree with this to some extent, but they go way beyond it in their understanding of who Cervantes was. They fit him into an age that is not just confined to the literary world. It's also an age of politics and the Inquisition and a time when certainty looked a lot like dogma and oppression and reasonable doubts and skepticism were treated like blasphemy. It was an age of disinformation, which many would say we are living in today or in danger of doing so. There are forces of disinformation all around us. And so what would Cervantes do is not just confined to the literary world, a kind of inquiry into what genres are out there to be satirized, but it's closer to how do we deal with a public getting information from everywhere, finding it hard to process all of it, with lots of lies and manipulation out there presenting itself as truth. What would Orwell do might be the first question we ask, but what would Cervantes do is the one I wouldn't have thought to ask, which is what makes the conversation with Professor Castillo and Professor Eggington and their new book on this subject so fascinating. We will hear from them after this. grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now are authors David Castillo, professor of Spanish literature and cultural studies at SUNY Buffalo, and William Eggington, Decker Professor of Humanities at Johns Hopkins University. Their new book is called What Would Cervantes Do? 
Navigating Post-Truth with Spanish Baroque Literature. Professor Castillo and Professor Eginton, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. Oh, thank so good you. to be with you. Nice talking to you. So let's start with the title. I can imagine, I mean, ordinarily we apply that phrase, what would Jesus do or what would Socrates do? And we apply it to issues of ethics or morality. And when it comes to an author, maybe what would Flaubert do or what would Proust do? We might be talking about artistic or aesthetic questions, but you have something different in mind. So what is the dilemma that we're looking to help solve with the help of Cervantes? David and I wrote a previous book called Mediologies that was sort of a broader attempt at a cultural critical analysis of two different periods in Western history, the current age, 20th century through early 20th century and the 17th century. And what we were doing in Europe specifically, and what we were doing was comparing what we called mediologies or two different ways that media, the media of the time, very different mm. technologically from the media, organized how populations conceptualize reality. And we ended that book by saying there's a few authors out there, a few thinkers that we really thought were a good model for how to deal with the problems created by our current mediology. And one of them that happens to be David and my preferred author was often known as the inventor of modern literature or the modern novel, Miguel de Cervantes. And so mm. we, begin, we ended that book by asking this question in the kind of rhetorical sense, what would Cervantes do, as you said? Precisely because people like to use it today uh, for sort of ethical questions, uh, what would Jesus do, etc. And uh, this struck us as kind of the right question to be asking about today's media environment. David, did you want to ask, add something to that? Um, no, if anything, kind of the elevator, you know, one sentence response, <laughs> which could be, uh, we think uh, revisiting the work of Cervantes today can help us hone the critical skills we need to navigate our age of media saturation and disinformation. Mm. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. So when when you say navigate, I suppose that could mean to some people, how do you get rich or take advantage of, or how do you survive right. with some integrity intact, or or how do you learn to, how to, to figure out what's real in an age of media saturation and disinformation? But I sort of take it to mean that what you're saying is, how do we return our society to a place of common understanding or a shared reality or... Or maybe how yes. to talk to your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving or something like that. You you assume <laughs> that your reader wants to sort through the post-truth world and figure out reality and wants to figure out how to help those around him or her do the same thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I think, you know, of the two uh, ways to interpret navigating uh, mm -hmm. our age of media saturation, mm -hmm. we tend to align Cervantes with your second explanation. So mm -hmm. as a yeah. way to... Yeah. So, and as opposed to, let's say, we would go with a different author for your first meaning. That would be Baltasar Gracián, mm -hmm. also a 17th century author, a little later uh, in the 17th century. And he basically was teaching the elites of his time to navigate their media-saturated world for a, a different reason, for a different purpose. And that was to get ahead, mm. to secure their power, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, as David and I point out, I think in this book, but in, but in others, that we, when we've written about Gracián, is that in the 19, I think it was the 1990s, right? Mid-90s, uh, sort of in the age right. of the uh, explosion of the, of the stock market and the, uh, the, dot com, the first dot-com uh, boom, uh, this obscure, relatively, uh, for, certainly for people outside of literary historical fields, this obscure Jesuit writer from the uh, 17th century 
had one of his books translated into English and it became an international bestseller. And, and one of the reasons why we argue is that something about the way that he was teaching people of his time to navigate in the sense that David was just talking about their mm. media environment was incredibly propitious for the current day as well. And I think that your, your question was really quite acute because it pointed out that there are two ways that you can navigate. You can navigate in a way to better your own circumstances, to, to accumulate more power. And Baltasar Gracian, despite being a, a Catholic priest, that's what he was all about. I mean, it's almost one of the most atheistic writers you can imagine because he's, he's valueless. He's really thinking only about how do you increase your power within a particular court setting at the time. Um, and then, on the other hand, there's the way that we are talking about navigate, which is precisely the idea of it has a kind of ethical imperative to it. And also something about freeing oneself from undue influence uh, of, of, of those around you and not just yourself, but those of oppressed classes, those who find that again and again, they're repeating certain actions precisely because they think they're doing something for themselves, but in fact are benefiting entrenched interests. Right. So w what was the name of the author that you mentioned? He sounds like a Machiavelli of media. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He actually is sort of a dating of Machiavelli's uh, philosophy, uh, political philosophy, for the uh, elites, the courtly elites of the 17th century. Mm -hmm. uh, his name was Baltasar Gracian. Oh, right. And the, the book that Bill referred to, or the translation that Bill was referring to, came under the title, The Art exactly, of Worldly Wisdom. wisdom. Uh, okay. So before we get to Cervantes and see exactly why he is so good at helping us to address this uh, dilemma that we find ourselves in today, I was wondering if we could run through some other authors that you mentioned in your introduction, mm -hmm. uh, George Orwell, Margaret Atwood, and Aldous Huxley. So how do mm -hmm. their examples inform the discussion? Maybe we'll start with Orwell. Bill, is it yeah. okay if I take a crack at this one? Yeah, go ahead and you take a crack at this one, David. All right. So uh, in a broad sense, you know, and this is kind of going off of your first question on how, you know, this is about uh, navigating uh, particularly disinformation in, in mm -hmm. our age of, you know, what we've called an age of infl inflationary media. And in a broad sense, it, this information is as old as humanity. But oftentimes when we talk about disinformation, we tend to think of or connect it to the information operations, the info ops, as they were called, of, say, the Nazi, Nazi regime or, or the Stalin regime. Mm -hmm. And uh, clearly, uh, Orwell's writings were influenced tremendously by the, the media environment of his time and how um, the Nazis and Stalin were able to secure power through the use of media manipulation, mm -hmm. their so-called info ops. And I think what, what makes Orwell such a, an important presence today, Orwell was a great analyst of his presence. And mm -hmm. as a result, he turned out to be a warning voice about the risks of a technocratic future. It's no accident that the adjective Orwellian has become a way of characterizing aspects of our political environment today. I don't know if you recall, uh, for, uh, as an example, James Clapper, the director of national intelligence under yeah. Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. He directly mm -hmm. referenced Orwell's novel in talking about the Trump world, where, as he said, up is down, black is white, war is peace. Yeah. And clearly what, what Clapper had in mind were uh, lines like from 1984, there is a need for an unwavering moment-to-moment -moment flexibility in the treatment of facts. And if the facts say otherwise, then the facts must be altered. You know, right. These are the kinds, of, the kinds of sentences that come out of, of 1984 that seem to speak directly to our press, particularly the right-wing media echo chamber. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the, mm -hmm. the phrase that we 
have come to use so often is gaslighting of uh, which, you know, in some ways almost makes it sound like a one off strategy or a tactic to get over a little hurdle. But taken cumulatively, it destroys people's faith in the truth or in the idea that there even is a reality. And in Orwell, clock strike 13. And it's all Mm -hmm. the things that Mm -hmm. that gets a citizenry in a mode of, well, who knows what the truth is? It's probably unknowable, so I will just do what I'm told and look to some source of authority that can just give me whatever the facts are that I need. Right, or choose the facts that are most propitious to what I feel like doing or to the particular Uh, identity that I've developed uh, for myself. In other words, once facts don't become points of of reference that are external to our world, but rather uh, sort of window dressing for the reality that we choose. There's very little that can be done to correct the course of one's actions, the the way that one wants to, you know, go about interacting with, with others in the world. One starts to follow exactly that path that is set for one by the community that one's been uh, thrown into, so to speak. And to go back, you know, we, we were mentioning that uh, Gracian's translation in the 1990s had become a, a surprise bestseller. Well, well, another surprise bestseller, in fact, was 1984, in, uh, mm. just after the 2016 election. And uh, one of the points that David and I make is that, and this is a go back to your question as well, Orwell is a very appropriate uh, reference point, but Huxley is as well, and for mm. two different reasons. And in some yeah. ways, you know, the current media regime has been a sort of unholy mix of the power of both of those those negative models. As yeah. we point out, you know, if Orwell is one model for how to go astray or has one model in mind for how to go astray, uh, Huxley's is rather the absolute trivialization of culture, where everything becomes entertainment, where everything becomes so surface level to the point where, in fact, you give up on any kind of external references and you don't make any distinction between advertising fact and simply, uh, you know, rallying for your own political party. And that's precisely what our the boogeyman, so to speak, of our uh, of our book, who's really we think more a symptom of the current mediology than than its cause, but also an extraordinary adept uh, navigator of it is Trump. Trump manages to do both, and to do both extraordinarily well. In other words, to take advantage of both the uh, power, the will to power on the Orwellian side of the abuse and, and destruction of language, and the absolute trivialization of language and meaning that uh, you see in Brave New World. Am I right, David? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that is a. I think we make reference to a, a 1985 book by Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which talks about the difference between Huxley and Orwell. And Postman comes closer to the Huxley side. He tends to think that while we were fixated on on this nightmare of the Orwellian totalitarian state uh, built on you know the suppression of information, omnipresent vigilance, and physical punishment, that the the Huxley vision of a society built on, on the promise of, say, unlimited and instant gratification, in which humanity, as Bill said, would drown in trivializing, stupefying uh, media technologies, that that was the, you know, the most imminent danger. As I recall, in his contrast, he basically said something to the effect that while Orwell was fixated on, on the notion that uh, some authoritarian future would be banning books, he said Huxley was more concerned about, the, about a future where no, no one would want to read a book. Right. Um, and, no need to ban you know, them because nobody's reading them. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. And, and uh, some other some other point he talks about how Orwell was always you know fixated on the notion that the truth would be concealed from us, while Huxley feared the the truth becoming irrelevant uh, mm. in a, in a sea exactly. of of uh, trivializing entertaining media. Bill and I think of the two of them as uh, yeah. Bill said as the double headed monster. It's not yeah. one or the other. 
Right. Exactly. And I just wanted to add one other point to what David was saying, because Huxley's point does seem so apropos today about culture becoming so trivial that truth becomes irrelevant. And yet books are no longer relevant and hence don't need to be banned. And it almost gives one a sense of relief when you actually have, as we've had in the last year, these discussions about the banning of books, not that the books are being banned, but that people at least fear books enough to need to ban them again, because that does right. give me a sense of hope that books can carry that power again. <laughs> right. That's a great point. Yeah. I just wanted to add that Margaret Atwood then kind of updates it in a sense by adding corporations or totalitarian theocracy to the mix. Right. I don't know if you came across this news feed uh, recently talking about how Margaret Atwood posted on Instagram a photo of herself sitting on a chair holding a mug with the phrase, I told you so. This is in response <laughs> to the dismantling of, of Roe v. Wade. Right. You know, so, yeah, yeah. yeah but but uh, as, as Bill said earlier, you know, this is another bestseller. The Handmaid's Tale mm, mm-hmm. became a bestseller again right after the Trump's 2006 election victory. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the, the Hulu TV series by, by the same name expands on the premise of the original novel. It has become wildly popular. And there's a reason for that. Obviously, that nightmare of the totalitarian theology seems way closer now than in, in the 1980s. And Jack, you were referencing also uh, the Mad Adam trilogy with your mm-hmm. comment. Mm-hmm. Again, that, that one achieved uh, best-selling status too. And uh, in, in all these books, basically the beginning of the end of humanity is signaled by the decline of, of the liberal arts under the weight of STEM right. fields controlled by corporations in yeah. a planet ravaged by environmental devastation. Mm-hmm. That connection, you know, the Madadam trilogy and the Handmaid's Tale seems so far from each other, but they both are structured around this basic understanding of a dystopian future. Right. Yeah. Well, the idea that the absence of humanities might be a great loss and restoring them to their pride of place in terms of giving us factual information, that sets up the second half of our conversation nicely. So let's take a quick break and then come back and talk about Cervantes and why we would look to him to help us solve some of the problems we're having in the age of disinformation. All right. Sounds good. Okay, we are back. So, why Cervantes? Why is the Spanish Golden Age relevant to the issues that we've been talking about so far? David, how about I start this one off and then you follow up? Uh, Does that sound good? Sounds good. One of the things that we love about this contrast and this comparison that we make in all of the work that we've worked on together is precisely because it seems so counterintuitive, right? The first Mm. thing that you say is, wait a minute, this was a theocracy, practically totalitarian theocracy at the beginning of the 17th century, uh, throughout the 16th into the 17th century, an empire that dominated brutally the entire world with death and destruction in all areas that had no semblance. In fact, democracy as we know it, modern democracy hadn't even been invented yet. A media environment that didn't even begin to have anything to do with modern media technology. Where in the world did David and I come along saying that there's some sort of comparison (laughs) to be drawn today, right? right? 
And yet we insist and have for now two books insisted on this, the remarkable, what we could call deep structural affinity between these two ages. And they have to do not with the technology of media at hand, but the way that the media work to it's what we call inflationary media to mm. overrun the boundaries of what people understand their reality. Mm. It's, it's a media saturation, media flood. And even though there were no electronic media in the time of Cervantes, there were new media that were taking the world by storm. In particular, there was print uh, mm. media, which had mm-hmm. just started to reap its heyday. And there was an international publishing industry, translating industry. There were such things as international bestsellers. People were reading. The literate population was exploding. And those who were not reading were being read to. So this was an ex- one extraordinary media explosion that was happening at the time. Pamphlets, for example, were circulating. Small books, large books, cheap editions. Uh, so this was brand new at the time. And the other that we both talk about is theater. In a country like Spain, Theater, the saturation of theater into the general population got to points where up to 90% of urban populations would make it to the theater at least once a year, and many, many more would go on on a regular basis. And so what we argue is that for the first time in European history, and coincides with the formation of a state, in some ways the first modern bureaucratic entity of a state, the Spanish state at the time, is that media were being used not only to saturate and to thus create a sense of communal reality out of which a nation state like Spain could be born, but that they were doing it was doing so in a way that actually depended on controlling people's sense of reality, what reality was. And that this is precisely what electronic media are capable of doing in the 20th and 21st century. So that's the comparison that we're beginning with. And then, and I can let David take over here and talk a little bit as well, we found that, of course, certain authors become very good. Not on the one hand, there are certain authors who become extremely good at navigating in the formers in the first sense of your of your question at the beginning of this hour, which is how do you do this really well? How do you make a fortune doing this? The playwright Lope de Vega is one of our examples of someone who navigates this brilliantly, becomes a, an amazing arm of the state in creating the kind of reality that the state benefits from. And then there emerges as well those counter voices, voices like Miguel de Cervantes, who, for the reasons that we can go into in some depth, manage at first, they perhaps believe in this ideal, and then bit by bit, they become disenfranchised and then turn that disenfranchisement, that disillusion into an extraordinary razor sharp knife for analyzing, for breaking apart and for creating strategies for navigating in the second sense of your question, the, uh, the new media reality. Yeah. So, David, maybe you could explain a little bit just what the disinformation was. What were regular people being subjected to that was taking them in the wrong direction? And was this coming from the state? Was that the church? As Is that sort of the church slash state that we're talking about here? So there are all kinds of different types of deceptive discourse, including some straight-out disinformation that was indeed created under the auspices of the Habsburg monarchy. Mm. Um, here's an example, you know, starting with Catholic uh, monarchs. So we're going back to, you know, the 15th century, but through the 16th century and the early 17th century, the, the Spanish monarchs were um, increasing their power and coalescing or making sure that the control of the, their empire, political control, military control, they also wanted ideological control. And the way they, they went about it, and this is just an example, they actually hired a bunch of pseudo historians to write, you know, ancestral histories of Spain under this notion that Spain had always already been a Catholic nation, that that Mm. Spain 
uh, had been a, a Catholic nation uh, going all the way back to, believe it or not, biblical times. Some mm -hmm. of these chronicles that, uh, that were obviously fake chronicles take the birth of the Spanish nation all the way back to the direct descendants of Noah. Just to give you an example of the kind of disinformation that, mm -hmm. that was going around. Yeah. And that disinformation, fake history that they were essentially paying for was creating an environment that was increasingly problematic for the non-Christian populations of Spain, the so-called mm. Moriscos and the so-called Conversos. So descendants mm. of, of Spanish Muslims and descendants of Spanish Jews, whether or not they had converted to Christianity or their parents or their grandparents had converted to Christianity, that didn't matter. It was about attacking, targeting their, their cultural heritage. So mm. by, by, you know, by essentially defining an essentially Catholic Spain and creating a fake history to prove that that Spain was the right Spain, and obviously those whose cultural heritage was outside of that version of Spain were essentially defined as outsiders, as invaders, cultural mm -hmm. others. And that ended up becoming a, a crucial ideological push or creating the conditions for the ideological push that allowed you know, Philip III to expel hundreds of thousands of people of, of Morisco heritage between 1609 and 1614. And this mm -hmm. is about the time that Cervantes is writing. I mean, Don Quixote, mm -hmm. the first Don Quixote was written before the expulsion of the Moriscos and the second Don Quixote right after. And Cervantes makes references to this in ways that, that really call attention to the, to the nonsensical nature of the framing of the of the Morisco question, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was Cervantes specifically taking a political stance and trying to affect policy, or was he just objecting to the disinformation and saying, how can everyone around me believe this stuff that's being put out here? It can't be, I mean, it sounds like make Spain great again is mm -hmm. the phrase that was coming to mind. But, um, you know, it's exactly he, right. Yeah. Was he a political actor in that sense, or was he basically just someone who was more from, a, I guess, an intellectual position saying, I can't swallow this and I can't believe the people around me are swallowing it either? The way we think of his work, you know, is, is really as a series of lessons on what we call uh, in the book, in both books, in mediologies and in what would Cervantes do, reality literacy. Mm. So, you know, as, as much as we college professors talk all the time about the need to teach our students to think outside the box, well, what Cervantes was, was doing is teaching readers to see the, the box. So the yeah. we can't think outside the box if we can't see the yeah. box. So his work is all about helping us see the box, the framing techniques, the, the different ways in which media, different kinds of media frame our world, our reality. There are incentives, so the media incentives to frame reality that way, and also our own reasons for wanting to buy into those representations, as Bill said earlier. Absolutely. So go ahead, and, Bill. And, uh, yeah, no, to swing back to a question that Jack had prior, uh, which was to characterize the specific who the state actors would be. Was it the church? Was it the state itself? Well, in fact, this was a very powerful theocracy, and the definition of a theocracy is, of course, ruled by religion, but in a way, it's almost as the tables were turned. The Catholic Church in Spain was its own institution, uh, apart in some ways, not entirely under the sway of Rome, and had become, with the, with the institution of the uh, Inquisition, an arm of the Spanish state. So it was a religious institution, but first and foremost, a political entity. And they had a kind of penetration of power that would be hard to imagine 
in any uh, modern situation outside of, say, the Nazi state or, uh, or a Stalinist regime in terms of the total control over the way people could uh, think, feel, act, express themselves. So mm. when you ask, in essence, was Cervantes, uh, would he have been a dissident? One really has to take into account how incredibly dangerous it would be to be an out-and-out dissident at the time. Mm. And for writers, every single book that you wrote, every time you put your pen to paper, before it saw the light of day, it had to be censored. And the censors, however, this is something that David and I have analyzed in several different places, and it's, that's well known. Censorship, of course, was also a community. They were because the very same people who were writing those histories that David just mentioned also would serve as censors. They would come to know the writers and the playwrights. There would be some in and out and some play among them, some mutual uh, kidding and razzing. And all of this ends up coming out in the textures of the books written at the time. So there is a, a very strong culture of critique, dissent even, but it's a culture that's always baked into the literary culture of the time in ways that you have to use a historical lens to tease out. Very few people would find themselves in a position, whatever dare, to openly say things that they knew would be considered against the regime and hence could be easily labeled as heretical because heresy could get you burnt, mm. tortured to death. Uh, the kinds of punishments that we find very hard to imagine today would be a, could very easily be inflicted on one. So was Cervantes a dissident or was he someone who kind of looked at the media environment around him and said, how can you all be believing this? It was a little bit of both, but certainly he was getting at the question and getting his technique was more focused on the second of those, which was to say, let me sharpen your ability to do what David and I call reality literacy. You have to see the box, namely the media box that you've been put into before you can. And then, you know, from that point, you can start drawing your own conclusion. One way to think of this to create a, a parallel that, that I think your listeners would be familiar with is comedy of Stephen Colbert, the, mm-hmm. particularly the old Colbert report where Bill and I refer to this style of comedy of of satire as excessive orthodoxy. In other words, (laughs) um, uh, Colbert was essentially uh, simulating, playing out the role of the conservative pandit that has become overwhelmingly familiar to us. He was reproducing the discourse, the mannerisms, the tone, the conspiratorial version of the world that has become so familiar to us in the last decade or two. And he was exaggerating it slightly, just enough so that he could open up a chasm between his role playing and the way his public would interpret that role playing to be able to show the irony there. And Cervantes was a master of that kind of approach. Mm. An example would be, rather than straight out criticizing the policy of Morisco expulsion in 1614, 1609 to 1614, what he did in Don Quixote too, is he placed the type of discursive apology of the, or defense of the, of the policy of expulsion in the mouth of a Morisco himself, of a victim himself, with all kinds of, of colorful allusions to the danger that Moriscos represent for the purity of, of Christian Spain. You know, and, mm-hmm. and he used the kind of language that has become so common uh, in Trump world to refer to immigrants, particularly of Mexican descent. You see all those metaphors that basically call them poison in the text in Don Quixote too, but you see it in the mouth of a, of a victim himself, uh, you know, mm-hmm. akin to it would be as if a Jewish prisoner in Auschwitz were to be praising Hitler 
for his zeal in protecting the purity of the German nation. So obviously mm. that comes across as, as what we call excessive orthodoxy, so we can see the irony there. But yeah. it can also escape censorship. Uh, for you know, as Bill said, a censor would be reading the text and thinking, well, this aligns with policy about the Morisco, so no intervention is needed here. Right. Exactly. You mentioned in the book that Cervantes had some personal disappointments that helped to clarify his beliefs, or maybe in the phrase we're using now, it sounds like it, it may have helped him see the box that was around him and his society. What were those disappointments and how did they help? So Cervantes says, perhaps unlike some writers of the time who are a little bit hard to write a biography about. I've written a biography of Cervantes that really focused in on this question, the man who invented fiction. And the interesting thing about him is he, he really led a swashbuckling kind of life. I mean, there's a yeah. ton uh, right. that we know about his life. He's an extraordinary figure who had, you know, he, he got into a duel when he was probably around 19 years old, had to uh, exile himself to, to escape having his hand cut off, ended up having the same hand wounded in one of the great battles of the war between the Christian states and Islam and the Turkish Empire, went uh, uh, was captured by pirates, was held in captivity in northern Africa for five years, finally uh, was ransomed, came back to Spain and thought after all of his service to Spain, to his king, he might finally achieve a sinecure in life and go about a happy old age. But instead, received one massive disappointment after the other, lived constantly in debt and bit by bit became more mm. and more embittered. And perhaps a lesser man would have turned that bitterness into something of a lesser art or none at all. In Cervantes' case, something just clicked. After a number of attempts to write, perhaps in the more grandiose style of his age, suddenly something clicked and he started writing this kind of biting satire, rich with characterizations that we argue not only enabled the kind of reality literacy that we praise and that we look to as a model, but that precisely because it focused in not on attempted objective descriptions of reality, but rather descriptions about how different people see reality differently, actually opened up the ability to write characters in a way that you can identify with them, understand their, their deep psychology better, and in, in essence, invented thereby the modern way that we've come to expect that fiction can deal with differing character and their different perspectives on life. Mm. And that accounts for both why he became such a powerful, extraordinarily influential literary source, as well as the secret power, that, that secret sauce in there that David and I find so compelling, the ability to see what David was calling the box uh, yeah. in, in order to get us to the point where we can see outside the box. It sounds like a Howard Beale kind of shift that he made. Right. Yeah. In a sense, and just to, to tease this out, if we were to bring this to the present again, we, yeah. we could say that while in the last few years, we have seen a dramatic increase in the number and the quality of technical tools that are aimed at solving or mitigating the, the problem of online disinformation, most of these tools are focused on debunking content to, to correct misperceptions and, and also on flagging untrustworthy accounts. But we know that fact-checking approaches, I mean, computer scientists know, I'm working with some of them right now on an NSF grant, and they themselves tell me that they are aware of the fact that this is not a technical problem, that, uh, and that fact-checking approaches are clearly important, but they are by necessity forensic in nature, retrospective, and they do not prepare you for this information that's coming, that they must be supplemented with public educating programs, kind of media literacy training that we speak about. This media training, and this is what Cervantes was so masterful at, is that he finds ways to identify the telltales of fakes. 
mm-hmm. you know, if we were to, to use that language today. So there are common yeah. motifs, there are storylines, the, the patterns of, of manipulative content, it's salacious yeah. hooks, it, it's emotionally charged appeals, all that stuff that we are so familiar with in, in our own media-saturated world today. He knew that scandalous and emotionally charged material attracts the most eyeballs. And of course, user eyeballs is what the, yeah. the media models are, are, are after, the attention merchants. He was aware of clickbait before there was such a thing as clicking. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So if we were to look for a, a modern-day Cervantes, it would not necessarily be which novel writer is capable of doing this. It would be who's meeting this kind of disinformation on its own terms, who's, who's on TikTok or Twitter or wherever people are getting the disinformation, and who is cutting through that and bringing the truth to people in a way that, that registers so it's not just preaching to the converted. As a matter of fact, in another book I, that I published almost in parallel with, uh, with this one with Bill, that was called Undeception, Cervantine Strategies for the Disinformation Age, I talked about the parallels between some, someone like Cervantes, surprising parallels between some, uh, you know, a novelist like Cervantes and, say, data scientist Cassie O'Neill in her mm-hmm. book, the, the Weapons of Mass Destruction. And, mm-hmm. and just to give you a sense of her, her basic notion is that the algorithms that uh, are behind the spread of social media today are opaque, unquestioned, and unaccountable. And they operate at scale to sort, target, or optimize millions of people. And precisely by confusing their findings, the algorithm's findings with on-the-ground reality, most of these algorithms create pernicious loops, feedback loops that make it, you know, and the, the trouble here is that profits, as she says, profits end up serving as a standing or proxy for truth. And this is precisely how Cervantes is warning about the fear of his time, for example, becoming a cultural commodity. You know, he's always Mm -hmm. pointing to the problem of the Lopin style theater in the same, using almost the same language as Cassie Emile uses to describe the danger of social media, you know, run by essentially the need to profit. And that can be, we could think of social media aside, tend to forget that even search engines such as Google are run by similar algorithms that identify your own uh, confirmation biases and use them to provide the kind of information that you that they think you would want or need. Mm. So an example would be when you go to Google and type climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live or, or mm-hmm. your media feed. So, yeah. you know, uh, depending on your media feed, the, the, the autocomplete may come out as climate change is a hoax. And that's a function, of course, not of what the truth is about climate change, but about what the algorithm knows about your interests and the information with which you are more likely to agree. Yeah. Colbert, as used to say, he'd feel things in his gut. He didn't, you know, when he was playing the character, he would say, uh, exactly I, right. I feel that it's true. That's what's important. Exactly. And then he would say, and do you know that your gut has more neurons than your brain? I know. <laughs> You're going to say that's not true. You looked it up. Yeah, but you looked it up in a book. I looked it up in my gut. <laughs> the thing I can't get over with Colbert is that moment where he had Bill O'Reilly, you know, he based the whole character on Bill O'Reilly, and then he had Bill yeah. O'Reilly on his show, and after he was pestering him with some questions in that Colbertian way, yeah. and O'Reilly at one point said, well, look, I'm just an act. And yeah. and Colbert, it was almost like he dropped character, because he just looked at him and he said, well, if you're an act, then what am I? <laughs> <laughs> 
And that that is another great Servantine moment. I mean, as David mm. has already yeah. said, we uh, we do find that in Colbert's act in the 2000 2010 in particular that uh, period of time he was almost channeling the uh, the ironic master in that way, finding ways to inhabit characters who would then open up new ways of looking at at their own media saturation, and of course that kind of a redoubling, that kind of a self-ironizing, that kind of a self-consumption is exactly what Cervantes became very well known for and what sort of created, you know, we refer to it as postmodern fiction or uh, post we all yeah. we refer to that kind of meta leveling up as postmodern. David and I have been saying all along, it has nothing to do with postmodern. It was there from the very beginning. It was just that kind of attention to media saturation that we call media literacy. Mm. Right. And this is also why an, another distinction that we make consistently is that people tend to think that the problem of, of, that we're experiencing in the so-called post-truth era is the spread of relativism. And right. uh, and that's why some people connect this with even well-meaning uh, people within academia itself, uh, sometimes accuse that postmodern philosophers mm. as being part and parcel of this erosion of the truth. Mm-hmm. And the point we make is that this really has nothing to do with relativism, but it's opposite. It's all about fundamentalism. We mm, call yeah. it reality entitlement. This is, one of, this is a key promise of the market society in which we live, is that the promise that we are entitled to our own reality. We can shop for our own reality. We can mm-hmm. live within the echo chamber that secures our, our view of the world. And that we identify that, Bill and I, as, a, as one of the most dangerous products of the market society, uh, mm-hmm. the, the notion that you, you basically can travel with your own reality in hand and just navigate the world without having to see anything outside that box. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, let's leave things there. The book is called What Would Cervantes Do? Navigating Post-Truth with Spanish Baroque Literature. Professor David Castillo and Professor William Eggington, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, thank Great you, Jack. It was you, a real Jack. pleasure. Great talking to you. Thank you, Jack. A pleasure. Okay, there we go. What would Cervantes do? Navigating post-truth with Spanish Baroque literature. I am happy, people, because I always love it when literature turns out to have a, a hidden relevance that I was not suspecting. When literature is smarter than I am, that's good that's good news. <laughs> My thanks to David Castillo and William Eggington for joining me. We are going to be looking at Percy Shelley and his time at Oxford soon. And some of his poems, maybe not the ones you expect, though. Also, Lady Chatterley's Lover, the D.H. Lawrence novel that inspired a contemporary novelist who lives in India. Getting close to October, my favorite month, and we're going to have two Emma's picks. How lovely. One of them is indeed by... Your favorite and mine, Edgar Allan Poe. Life is good, people, even for a humble podcaster. Speaking of which, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.